Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. I am an alcoholic. My name's Buck. Hi, everybody. Thank God, there's a lot of people stayed here. I figured that eating first, there wouldn't be nobody here for the meeting. <laughs> yeah, it is good to be here. <clears throat> I got my old polygrip in place. You know, this will relax for a little while. <laughs> got nothing to do. I've been sober. Give us sobriety days. I've been sober 24 days, 9 months, and 34 years. By the grace of God, because this thing works. And it really works. And I, I, I was looking at the four absolutes up here, and I, I was kind of raised on them. I had a sponsor got sober up in Cleveland, and uh, by the grace of God, he got sober in 1941. Never had a drink, another drink, until he died ten years ago. <clears throat> and we used to talk about them four absolutes. But the first time I heard, heard anything about the absolutes, he said he kept saying to me. You need to work on your purity. I didn't know what purity was, you know. And I said to him, what do you mean I need to work on my purity? He said, that nasty mouth of yours. And now, you know, I'd been about sober about six months. And I started cleaning up my profanity then. And you might hear me say a little hell or damn, but you don't hear no that barnyard talk no more out of me. And uh, so I'm going to try to get by the day without doing any of that. Uh, I was born down in Union County, North Carolina, on a cotton farm. Not a, no alcohol in my family at all. I don't know why I ended up the drunk. There was seven boys and one girl. And the rest of them, they don't, none of them don't know how to drink even until today. And, uh, we was raised on that farm and, and went to church regular, little Methodist church. Now I want you to know I'm not a Catholic. I want to get that clear before it gets started. <laughs> <laughs> I went to that little Methodist church down there on the farm, and everything everything went good. Every time the church doors opened, my mother saw it. We went in and got to church. And my dad was a good man, but he's not a church man. And he raised uh, six boys and that one girl and taught us some principles. If live by, I'd, I'd have been all right. Never would have drank no liquor. For it. it certainly would have done in our home. But when the time comes, one would get out of high school, and he'd leave home. And then it come, the next one coming along, uh, it's time for him to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, build the fires, and uh, go, go down and start milking the cows. And when, when I got big enough to do that, I knew I didn't like that. And I'd get on a trailway bus, and I went to Charlotte. Got over that bus, and went down the street there and got me a little room. And I got rid of my blue bill of overhauls on. Now, folks, that's been over 60 years ago. I ain't never put no more blue bill of overhauls on since then. They look good on everybody else, but I just don't like them. And I went up the street that day and asked my man for a job. He said, son, I need somebody here. He said, you have to be 16 to work here. I didn't bat an eye. I said, I'm 16 and a half. Just lied a year. And, you know, and didn't think nothing about it. And he said, well, my guy said, run over here and get your workers from bed. Told me right where to go. And said, come on back and I'll put you to work at 3 o'clock this evening. 
I tried it over there, and on the way over there, I kept thinking. Now, my mom and daddy told me, you don't lie and steal. And here I am, I've done told a lie. And it bothered me. And I went ahead and lied to it. I got my workers from it and just started on back down there, and it really was bothering me. It didn't bother me enough to tell the truth. I went to work at it at 3 o'clock with an old boy named Owen Pruitt, and he was born over here in Paisley. And uh, it might be some of you all remember when a man fell out of an airplane in 1956, going through Charlotte to Asheville on his fifth honeymoon. Now, that boy had a problem. Took him five times and fell out of a damn airplane. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but Pruitt, was, he was a good man. I went to work with Pruitt that day, and everybody, women just crazy about old Pruitt. And, uh, and that night when they closed the shop, Pruitt said to me, Buck, would you like a drink? I said, man, I sure would. Now, I thought that he was talking about a Pepsi-Cola. I didn't know nothing about liquor. And he come back in the kitchen, and he had a pint of whiskey and two tumblers and a, and a Coke holder. And he took the top off of that bottle and handed it to me, and I didn't know what to do. He said, go ahead and pour your drink. Well, I poured a tumbler half full of liquor. And he said, uh, don't you want some Coke? I said, no, I drank mine like this. So you know I never had drank no liquor. <laughs> And, and I turned that glass of whiskey up, and I took about two swallows. And boy, liquor came out of my ears, nose, and eyes, and it made a mess out of me. And it went on down to my little room that night. One of the cab drivers took me down. We drove across the old Southern Depot there in Charlotte. And the cabs had all lined up along there to pick up people coming in on the train. And so the next day when I got out the next morning, I walked the streets of Charlotte and looked it over. And, and I went on to go to work, and all the cab drivers out there, and they was kidding me. Yeah, I heard about you taking that drink of liquor last night, and yeah, it was good, it was good to me. They were thinking on me, but that was all right. And so I went to work that day, and, and at 12 o'clock at night when they closed up, one of the old boys that was working there, he said, Buck, come on ride with me, and said, I'll show you this time. Cab driver. And I said, okay. He made a couple of pickup and deliveries, and we put it in a little place down on Mint Street. Now, there's no liquor stores in North Carolina in 1948. Everything, wet, wettest place you've ever been, but there's no liquor store. And we pulled this little place, and I said, what are we going to do here? He said, oh, we're going to get us a drink of liquor. Only thing I learned from my first drink of liquor was, you pour a little, whole lot of Coke and a little bit of liquor. I did learn that much. So I fixed me a drink, and what but a minute, we downed it, and, and uh, he, Frank, reached over, and he got my cup, and he filled it full of liquor, and just put a little bit of Coke. We downed that, and he said, but... He was having fun out of me. See, a little country boy, and I never had been nowhere, didn't, and that was all right. But he said, let's go pick up some wind. Now, I done had two drinks of liquor. I done tackled a damn tiger that night. I said, let's go. <laughs> and man, away we went. I'd been shot two days and had done experience liquor and women. Neither one of them could have killed me, and almost did. <laughs> Before I got there. And, uh, I ain't too good of water. <laughs> uh, hell, I done forgot. Where I'm at. My name's Buck. Well, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> we would just start over. <laughs> oh yeah, I've done experience wrecking women, and um, so th- in World War Two, began to get along, and they drafted me, and I went in service, and I was a good soldier. I really believe that, and. Uh, I think most of the time I was afraid to drink the way I wanted to while I was in service. But I wanted to be a good soldier. And I still don't know how we ever won World War II. But I hear these people get up at AA meetings and talk about how drunk it was flying the airplane. And I swear I don't know how we ever won the war. But we, 
Thank goodness we did. And when the war was over, I ended up in the hospital and right downtown in Paris, France. My brother was sending me a carton of cigarettes, and I was getting a carton and didn't even smoke. Now, that's like having gold right in World War II, in, right downtown in Paris. So I had all the money I wanted. And orders come through for me. One morning, they said, go check in with the outfit. We're going to release your boss with you, flying out, going back to the stage. Well, I was no hurry about coming back home. Never been loved. Didn't know what love was. And I was hoping they'd uh, keep me around there. But I went in, instead of going back and checking in and flying home that day, I went down and checked in the hotel. And we sat late in there and drank for, this was an alcoholic drink. We just fun drinking for a week. And I said, you know, I'll check in my outfit. Maybe they'll keep me over here about six months. And I went down that morning to check in my outfit. And they had me on the plane heading for Fort Bragg at 10 o'clock that morning. Nobody didn't say nothing about where you been. Or they just seemed to be glad to get, get me on that plane and get me out of there. So I come on home and my mother and dad lived down, still lived down on the farm there. And I went down and spent the night with them and, they went to bed about 8 o'clock with the chickens. But they got up with the poor. And Mama got up and fixed a big breakfast and everything. We, we had a good breakfast. I said, well, I'm going to go back to Charlotte and see if I got, can find me a job. Well, I kind of knew I had a job. And I went on back and I was working with a little canary. And I walked into the place there and the man, Ralph White, I bet I knew him. He said, man, are you out of service? I said, yeah, I got up there. He said, I fired a guy a while ago. I said, you did? He said, yeah. Caught him stealing. said, I want you to go to work. I said, well, I have to get me a room. He said, okay, go in the room, come on back. And he hired one thief and not, fired one thief and hired another on that day. <laughs> <laughs> I went up there and went to work that evening with that man. And about, about eight o'clock, this old long tail, lanky gal come walking in the door. I could, she kind of turned me off when she came in the door. I thought, damn, that's a good looking gal. I got talking to her. So I, and this is the way it happened that night. And, uh, <laughs> And so I turned around, and she was gone. And I thought, damn, I'll let her get away from me. It woke a little bit, the phone rang, and she said, uh, how about taking me home? I said, okay. I said, where are you at? She said, well, you don't even know who this is. I said, yeah, you eat that old long, lanky gal that was in here a minute ago. She said, that's right. I said, where? She said, I'm at home. I said, where you live at? And she told me. I said, I'll be there when I close the shop at midnight. She said, all right. Went up there. And she wouldn't let me in the house. And we caught it on the swing. Now, folks, that's been over 55 years ago. And that ain't the way to start off those 55 years marriage on the swing. I can tell you that now. But the next day, she come by the place and wanted to know we're going out. And I said, no, I do a little drinking. And I knew all the bootleggers, all the cab drivers. And I said, I'm going to go out tonight with my buddies and do a little drinking. I'll talk to you later. She said, okay, and she left. And, but that night when I closed the shop at midnight, I was ready to go do some serious drinking. And I walked out, and she was parked close to me at that table to the front door. And I thought, damn, she must have ought hurt me. I'm going to step over and tell her I ain't going to her. And when I started to go over to the car, she had 12 bottles of long legs sitting up on the seat right beside her. And I think I knew I was going to marry that one right then. <laughs> <laughs> I crawled in the way we went, and we had we had fun. Things went good. A year later, we got married, and we bought us a little house out there. And she got 
pregnant, our first daughter come along, the other year another child was born. Wasn't making no money, didn't need none. You know, I've always said two people in love the way we were. At that time, all you needed was a mattress and a box of cornflakes, and hell, you was getting along. <laughs> and so, and we were in love, and things went good. You know, everybody was veterans out in the little neighborhood that we bought in, and we'd get together on Saturday night, buy a quart of liquor, and there'd be four or five couples to get together. You can't get no trouble just taking a dip now and then like that, and I didn't have any trouble. And then I had a chance to go to move to South Carolina, moved over to Lancaster, opened up a motor in driving. And I'm sure some of y'all going number nine over there to Bleacher is a, is a fine restaurant, good looking restaurant. And things went good. I made more money there the first year there. You know, you take a little old country boy and never had no money, you give him a pocket full of money, damn, he ain't got a problem. I guarantee you. And I just went, wow. My wife was working with me. She could run the business. Back in, we had good help. And she could run the business, take care of it as good as I could. And that gave me time to join all the clubs I wanted to join, do whatever I wanted to do. And I got, I, I just fell into this thing. You know, and and that little boy was in a game. I did a club there one night, and I kept watching him, but he was watching me. And when the game was over, he said, Buck, said, I've been watching you. I said, you have. I've been watching you too, Buck. He said, we could get together and we could make some money. I said, the way you handle them cars, I said, when are you going to start? He said, about in the morning. And we just like, we've gone to the mill. We got together and we, I got good at it. But I asked him, I said, boy, what's your name? That's all it told me. Something, he said, they called me Shrewdy. Now that's something, that's a message right there. And, and he was a little Cajun from down in Louisiana and he was a good one too. He, he, he taught me a lot of good things. And we, we rambled around and, I used to call it gambling. We wasn't gambling. We just stole. There used to be a place right down here on 501. I've been, been here nights out there. I walked out of there with my pockets full of money. And you can, you can do very well. And I want to tell you one more. I, and I went back and, and was, uh, my wife was pregnant with our third child. We was living over in Lancaster. And so I told him, I said, buddy, she had to ask me to come back and start running the place so she'd go home and take care of herself. And I, I felt terrible. And I told her, I said, don't hang around, don't want to see you no more. And that night I went home and I took a shower and I went to bed. And I tossed and turned all night, couldn't sleep. And I didn't know what an alcoholic was. And I didn't, certainly didn't know that I was an alcoholic. But this is the first time I ever decided I was going to quit drinking. And the next morning I got up and I say I tossed and turned all night. I got up and went out and looked this place up. And man, I couldn't cut it. I was about to go crazy. And didn't know that I needed to drink a liquor. But I thought, you know, I quit forever. I didn't know I'd drink a liquor for to fix me. And I decided, hell, you know, life ain't worth it. I'm going to end it. And I walked back to the stock room with a 38 in my pocket. And there's a quart of gin sitting on the shelf there. And I knocked the top over that bottle and I drank every swallow I could take. Get down. And you know what? But a few minutes left on. Man, wasn't that the silliest damn thing you ever thought about? <laughs> And from then, till I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I never quit one more time. I ended up, had a brother in this town to give him the place. I put him in business there. He'd done well. And he had him, bought him a home in Florida and went up in the mountains and run up and down the road in that big Cadillac. And I used to look at it and I said, oh, God, that ought to be mine. You know, and it was mine. I drank it up. And, uh, we get, we good friends today, but, uh, 
uh, I resented it. And I'd get me an old service station bill. I'd put a drink box out front and a dice table and a poker table in the bank. And that's where I made my living. Just, and one day the sheriff came out there. Me and him would drink liquor together. I'm one of the first ones we can. And Clark came out there one day. He said, look, we've got a federal man in town. I said, he's looking for people selling liquor. I said, I know this don't pertain to you. But I said, I just thought I'd tell you about it. About two hours later, the sheriff and that federal man back out there, I done sold him two jugs. And, and so, you know, I, I was having trouble with drinking liquor. And, uh, ended up, and I told my wife, I'd got off, I was running along the club there. Y'all don't have to worry now, I'm gonna look at my watch, but I'm, uh, I forgot what time to start, but when I get ready, when I get done, I'll sit down, you think I'm done where I'm done or not. So it just don't, I, I ain't gonna run no overtime on it. Uh, but, uh, I told my wife, I, I was getting off of this drunk after I'd run the club there, and I, I called them one evening and told them I was quitting. They said, why? And I said, the people hanging out at this club just caused me to stay drunk, and I'm going to get away from here. They tried to get me to take off two months with pay. I said, Buck, you've made us more money than anybody's ever run this club. But you know, when you cut the pot and seal in two, damn if you won't get them. Hey, it's your enough. And, uh, and I'd done very well for the club. But I told him I was quitting, and I did. And I stayed around the house for two or three weeks. And I told my wife, I said, you know, if we go down on Main Street and I've got the nice restaurant, won't serve any beer and wine, I won't drink anything, we get all the church people come back doing business with them. And boy, that sounded good to her, too. And she said, God. And she'd save some of that money if I was throwing away. And she said, let's go, let's do it. And we did. Went down and opened up a beautiful little restaurant there. But when you've been in there, jails for bootlegging and fighting and drug out of places, Expect the church people to come do business with you. Damn, people started there fighting on them, eh? <laughs> I just didn't do no business. And, uh, but I ended up one, one, first day of October, 1967. I went to open the door and I said, hell with it. I hung the lock back in the door, went to the liquor store and started drinking. And Christmas Eve of 1958, <clears throat> I come home. And there's a big band backed up to the house. Well, I knew what was going on. I, Folks, if you don't believe this is a family illness, and I'm sure there's some Alanons in here, uh, this, this affects us all. That band was moved up, and my wife came around out, she said, Buck, I'm not leaving down here, so I got a job in Charlotte. Got us a place to stay, and, it, and I'm not leaving to leave, leaving you. If you want to go with us, you can go. And I said, well, you got everything loaded, the beds loaded. And she said, yeah, I said, yeah, let's go. I ain't had no place to sleep at night. So we went back to Charlotte, Christmas Eve. And folks, that's not a good time to move, I can tell you that, man. <clears throat> Sometime on the 4th of July or Thanksgiving, I see a truck going down the road and furniture tied up all over it. I know what, there's a problem. You can bet on that. When I'm back up there and, and uh, I thought, now, I'll go down on Monday morning and ask this man for a job. On Monday morning, I, I couldn't do it. I just knew that he knew that I was right, and I wouldn't go ask him. I went out to Diamond Point Town, where all the contractors hung out. And I asked the man for a job there. He said, I'm a brick contractor. I said, you got any work? He said, yeah. So I need a laborer. I said, I'll make you a good one. I said, what are you doing? He said, mixing mortar and hauling brick. And folks, I was a young man then, and I could mix that mortar and I could haul in bricks. But he paid me one dollar an hour. Now that's coming down the road on fast, fast trip. 
year before that, I paid taxes. I mean, taxes on better than $85,000. I ain't counting a lot of stove. And uh, <laughs> at a dollar an hour, you ain't gonna you ain't gonna drink the top shelf there. I'll tell you that. And uh, I'd get off in the evening, go down there, and and, and found out some days I would they couldn't work. The bricklayers couldn't work. And for thirty nine cent, I found this is my dope store. For thirty nine cent, I could buy a little bottle of this terpene hydrate with codeine in it. It gets you downtown in a hurry, I'll guarantee you. And if I don't live much over a hundred, I had ought to never cough again. <laughs> but that's a powerful cough, sir. And I, it done the job for me, so I can't kick it. But uh, then I, I ended up in uh, one day, he said about a place out there on the boulevard for sale. And he said, uh, Ben, there's a fellow out there trying to get rid of the little old beer joint. I said, you ought to go out there and look at it. Now out there. And the man told me what he wanted for it. I said, I'll be back in the morning with the cash. And I know that guy laughed when I walked out of there with that old buddy boots on and cement all over me. But I had a plan. And I knew this brother I put in business was just dying to help me. And I'd go down there and talk to him, and he'd put me in business. And so... I tried to get sober that night, and you can't get sober at eight hours. Right? God, I'd have been better off drunk. But I, I went on back down there and went in and started telling about a nice place it was. Most of it lies, maybe a little truth. And he said, well, Buck, I hope you get it. So then you made a mess out of your life. And I said, well, that's reason I'm down here. I want to borrow the money from you to buy it with. He said, Buck, anybody made the money you made and threw it away and neglected your family. I wouldn't let you have a damn nickel. All I, all I want to do is get up and get out. So I had hit him when he was hurting. But I, I got him and started to join. He said, listen, if you ever decide to do anything about your drinking, he said, I'll put you in any kind of business you want to do. Hip you any way I can. I said, I don't think I'll take another drink of liquor as long as I live. And why? I said, that God only knows. And he stopped me. And he pulled out a roll of I mean, a roll of money. Don't never give a drunk no money, cash. <laughs> and and he, he started counting it out, and he said, there's this going to be enough. I said, that'll do it. He said, if you need anything else, call me. I'll, I'll get it to you. I said, okay. Now, I was as grateful as any human being could be right then. I had my hands full of money. And I started out in the car, and, you know, between his living room and my car, I thought, boy, boy, I put you in business. You've done well and talked to me that way to hell with you. And I took some of that cash money, went out and bought me a case of liquor, and I talked about him all the way back to Charlotte. And, and if I ever needed AA, hey, I needed it then, they had never heard of it. Went on back out there and got the old Bo Peep and, and started running it out there. Man, I was selling some beer. Them, them bootleggers over in Gaston County, they needed, needed the outlet. I was happy to it. And, and done very well. And, and uh, then one day I had the chance to go in business for myself. And the man, man that run the motel there, he come over there one day, he said, listen, he watched me. You can tell when somebody watched He's watching me. I could, I could feel him watching me. And I turned around and he said, listen, said, I, I just bought this motel up here beside you. He said, you look like a good operator. You know, we do operate pretty good when about half the bag sometimes. And he said, you're a good operator. So I'd like to hire you. I said, oh, I got this business going here and I got a wife and three kids. See, I, I, I didn't tell you, I took my wife to the hospital on the last I was born drunk. She had to get an ambulance. Come on. 
he said, got nice living quarters and everything. He said, talk to your wife. And if you're interested, I'll meet you up. I'll be up there at 8 o'clock in the morning. I said, well, I might mention it to her tonight. See, I'd lay around these motels drunk, and I knew that wasn't no bad deal. When that door closed behind him, I called my wife, and the insurance company up, and I told her, I said, listen, you tell them you won't be there anymore, we're going to get that mo- job around that motel out there. Sure enough, next morning we pulled up there, and that man hired me and paid me more than I had ever thought about making in my life. His name was W.S. Landon from Old Lincoln, the finest man I ever knew. And I run that motel for four years for him, and every time he come out there, he'd come out twice a year. And every time he'd come out there, I knew he'd come and fire me. Scared to death. But I was staying drunk all the time, but I was making so much money he couldn't fire me. I knew, I know that now. I didn't know it back then. But, uh, he was, he was a good man. And he ended up and got back in business for myself. And that's when I met an old boy and got an AA. And his name was Percy Barker. Percy's dead today. And, and so one day, Got to missing person. We down behind the old red barn out there, and the police ain't gonna come up and get no cuckleberries on them. You go out behind that red barn and stay, you can stay out there and die. They'd probably just bury you. There ain't nobody come looking for you behind the red barn, I guarantee you. And so we go up there and drink and just lay around, and one day Percy didn't show up, and I said, well, wonder where is Percy at? Next day somebody said, wonder where's old Percy at? Hey, we are gonna spend a dime to call Percy. We just wondered about him, you know. And, and so, uh, <laughs> so one morning I was sitting out there and I saw this shiny car coming in and I thought man what the, something wrong it, it, clean car and the guy got out and his shoes and shine and I thought some dude's in the wrong place and he turned around and it was Percy and he said Buck you got any coffee I said yeah I got some instance in there he said I'd like to have some, so I want to talk to you. So we went on in. I poured me another drink of liquor. Now, I was drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I poured, poured him, making him some coffee, and I poured me another drink. He said, Bucks, I know some people can hit you. He, I said, what are you talking about, person? He said, you're going to lose this little deal you got going here. You're going to lose that wife and those three kids. And said, these people can hit you. Well, I thought he'd better banker, you know. That's who I needed right there. And I said, Percy, who are you talking about? He said, it's a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I know I had heard something about that, but that's the first time I'd ever registered. Now, he put a damn booger on me, folks. I can tell you now. And I told Percy, I said, you go to hell. So I know I'd heard something about AA. And he got, he started the door and he turned around and he said, Buck, if you ever decide to do anything about your drinking, call AA. So we listened to the telephone book. And he walked out. Friday night, if I could have got him to come down to my treatment center, I would have loved to talk to him. <clears throat> well, my treatment center was Michaelburg County Jail. And, uh, <laughs> and I was down there Friday night, and, and I kept thinking, man, why didn't I find out something about that AA deal? And he put a booger on me, and ever, from then until about ten months later, every weekend I'd think about Percy, and my pride wouldn't let me call him. So one day there's a girl that was working there. They come on down toward the end, folks. Girl, girl, was, girl was working there and she missed the bus. And I told my wife, I said, I'm going to run Luella home. And I was drinking every day. But I'll be back in a few minutes. I'm on 52. In a little place just before we get to the North Carolina line. And I'd heard about this. There's a big gang going on in the house over there. 
And so I go over there that morning, September 21st, 1967. And I started back in the big house, and the man stopped me. He said, where do you think you're going? I said, I'm going back here to the big game. He said, we don't allow strangers now. You you get on back in here. And so I asked him if he'd like to have a little drink of that hundred Bruce Marinol, and he said, yeah. And I got over on the table. We shot a few games, and I'd talking a hundred miles an hour. You know, we know how to work on these, get ourselves in places. And I, I was talking a hundred miles an hour, and after a while I said, you ready for another drink? He said, yeah. Poured him another big drink, and I waited. I knew the time. I said, do you think I'm going to get back now? He said, oh, hell, but go on back there. I know you. So sometimes the juice works. And so far as I know, I went back there, and I was talking to myself. And the man might be in here today. God, I don't know. That's been a long time ago. But he come in and laid a little 32 up on the table. Said, this is going to be an honest game. <clears throat> you know what I thought? I'll get your money and get you the hell out of here with that gun pretty quick. And I did. And uh, <laughs> his game didn't last long, but I, I just I remember the last drink of liquor. I think is I took. I turned that glass of whiskey and I drank it down, and I blacked out, which I've been blacking out since they came out with this thing. And I, and I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember leaving that place. I drove 75 or 80 miles back down on Water Reef, and when I come to down on the pine woods there on Water Reef, I was scared to death. I had my pockets full of money and the shirt full of money and didn't know, didn't even remember leaving the place. And that night I got on my knees and I prayed to a God that I knew about and asked him to help straighten my life out. That's the first sincere prayer I'd said in a long time. Except, now I said a lot of sincere prayers when I was in jail. I hear people say I never prayed. If you ain't never been in damn jail, I've been to you pray. I prayed to get out, but I'd forget about it. And I'd, when I'd get out, I'd think, well, I'm going to get out anyway. You know, I never. Sooner or later, I'd let me out. But uh, that night, I said a sincere prayer. And the next morning, I got up and I drove back to Charlotte. <clears throat> Been gone two weeks in. And I walked in. And they didn't thought of an alibi to tell my wife where I'd been. She always wanted to know where you've been, who you've been with, what you've been doing. And most of the time, really, I didn't even know Messiah. But she didn't say anything. I walked in and she said, good morning. I didn't know that God had been in our house before I got there. <clears throat> wasn't no fuss or nothing. We talked a little bit. And I wasn't going to about to tell her I was going to do something about my drinking, you know. And after I she went to the room, I opened the telephone book up and I called our college phenomenon. A little lady named Betty Brown said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want to do something about my drinking. She said, can I send somebody out? I said, oh, my God, no. The only thing I can think of is I must have thought that they might think I was an alcoholic if they come out there, you know. And I said, is there not some place I can come? And she said, yeah, 709 East Boulevard. Said, there'd be somebody here to talk to you. I said, see you in a little bit. I got in the car and went down there, walked in, and she said, I want you to meet Jim. But when I got got to the door, she said, well, you must be Buck. And I thought, well, how did she recognize me, you know? And I, she said, I just told her I'd been drunk for two weeks. She could have seen me a mile away, you know. And so, uh, but she said, I want you to meet Jim. And Jim said, you want to go to a meeting tonight? And I said, if that's what you do to quit drinking, I guess I do. He said, you be here at 7 o'clock out front at 7 o'clock tonight, and I'll pick you up. 
that we'd go to a meeting. He thumped a dime down and said, give him a cup of coffee. He walked out, and I thought it was cold and still did. But I wanted to stay sober, Lord, I wanted to drink that day. I went home that night, that evening, and I stayed at the house, took me a shower and put on clean clothes, the best I had. And I went down to the club and, and parked out front there at 7 o'clock, and Jim pulled up in that big Chrysler, and he said, come on, get in. I thought, oh. Yeah, you, uh, I told you, I'd done hitchhiked back murder beef through the buses and everything, and I sure as hell wasn't going off somebody at a meeting that I didn't know a stranger. And I told him, I said, I'll follow you. And so I followed him over to the Queen City Group, and I know some of you, Irvin Hank, was running the biggest funeral home in Charlotte back in those days. And Hank used to eat with me, and and I saw him standing out there when we pulled up. And I thought, my God, I'm sick, but if they got an undertaker out here, they got about <laughs> six people coming here to this place tonight. <laughs> and, and, and Hank saw me, and he recognized me, and he come trotting over there with the hand out. And he said, Buck, and I'm Hank. Irvin Hank, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, who raised for you? But uh, you know, I didn't say that. I was just glad to see somebody that I knew around there. And the, the old smart aleck, when me and Hank was talking, Red Irvin came up there and he said, you got a new one tonight, Hank. And Hank said, what are you talking about? He said, that car, that window's all broke out. of it. we got a new one. Hey, that's my car. You know. And, uh, but I, I went on in and I listened to a man talk that night. John Hoppy talked. Best day talk I ever heard. Man, he got up there and told all the things that I'd been doing. Like he knew everything I'd done, he'd done. And that's about the truth. We, we can identify with other people. And, and when John sat down, everybody clapped and, and I, and I really, I thought, you know, I'd, I've done all these done, but damn, if I get a poor group of people tell about it, and I've been doing it ever since then. And then when I, well, I, I they give out the chips, so if anybody has a desire to quit drinking chips, drinking liquor, come up and get this desire chip, I got one. And by God's grace, I've never had to go back and get another. I got busy. A man, a little man sitting over there, a lot of y'all knew, Harry D. And he had on a board, loud clothes, yellow, yellow sport clothes with black stripes on it. He had, I thought it was women's shoes, patent leather shoes, something like that. He had a grease good that night, and old Harry looked cool. And when the meat was over there, he came over and put his arm around me, he said, I'm a Harry Barry. I'm an alcoholic. Now, these be people all day, and I ain't breaking so He said, uh, and I said, well, I'm Buck Mountain, and I picked up that desire chip all again. And Harry looked me right in the eye, and he said, Buck, <clears throat> I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I looked down to see if I was unzipped. I said, oh, my God. <laughs> I got to get away from Harry. <laughs> you know? Thirty thirty three years later, Harry still standing at that door. He died two years ago now. Stand at that door and every new drunk would come in. Harry told him he loved him. And thank God for that. Another <clears throat> boy back there, he said, you sick heart the boy. I said, man, you don't know? He said, yes, I do. And if you won't get well, you stay here with us and we'll show you how. He said, you got any money on you? He didn't ask if it's stolen or not. I said, yeah, I got money. He said, go over and buy a big book, $4 and a half. It might be the best investment you ever made in your life. I believe it is. And I, I got that big book. And he said, I'm going to ask you something else. I said, okay. When did you have your last drink? I told him, he said, if you ever take another drink of liquor as long as you live, it'll be because you'd rather be drunk than to be sober. I said, now, how do you figure that? He said, well, all we do is one day at a time. You've already gone 24 hours, so you don't ever have to take another drink of liquor as long as you live. Now, that'll put a damn thinker on you, I can tell you that. And uh, and I had me a big book, and I had about five or six of Harry's telephone cards, and had three or four 
telephone number, and I took that big book and I hid it wrong. Scared to death. Didn't want, you know, I was proud that I'd found a bunch of people that I subbed with. But then I went in and there was my wife and three kids. I couldn't tell them I'd joined alcoholics a lot. Went in and dropped my big book in the clothes hamper. And I thought they were sitting up there waiting on me. Then I went a few minutes, they all went to bed. I just got my big book and went in the bathroom and pulled the big light on and I sat there and read that big book. Read it over to, that night over to Bill's story. And by the time I got there, I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew my life was something there was no doubt in my mind about that step. And I think I took those first three steps down in the woods that night and didn't know what I'd done. But this program has worked. Now, you know, I, I ain't got time. I ain't going to do it no way. It's quitting time in a little bit. <laughs> uh, but this program has worked. Th- to me, the, the, it's all wrapped up in trust God, clean house, and help others. That takes care of you, 12 steps, right there. You know, we do them individually, but that's the whole program for me is trust God, clean house, and help others. And if you read your 12 steps, it takes care of the whole thing if you do that. And and so I, I started going, man, I was going to some AA meetings now. Wasn't telling my wife and kids where I was going, but I was going every night. Been going about three weeks, and she said, I said, I'll see you about 9.30, She said, well, I want to go with you. I said, come on. I said, I said, oh, I feel I done played hell now. She go there. I, I'm sober. I love the people. And ain't having no trouble. And, and she go over and screw the whole deal. That's right. That's how good we was getting along there. But we got over there. And got, and I didn't, nobody ever said nothing to me about Alma. But I said that night, I'm going to get me a sponsor tonight. See, everybody thought I had a sponsor. The man would come with me. He's gone. I never had to see him anymore. And so, went in that night and we went and there was, the women all went downstairs. And so I told her, I said, they meet down there. I didn't know who they were. But she went down them steps. As I understand it right, they, she got down there and they cut them lights down low. And they killed that damn goat. And that woman ain't ever been the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> And I just love her to death. We've had, we've had, we've had 34 beautiful years. Now, I ain't saying that, but you know, we still fuss and fight. Hell, if you don't fuss and fight, you ain't got no making up time. So, we've had a, <laughs> but we've, we've, it's been a good life. But got three daughters all on their own and, and raised them. <clears throat> and they've done good in spite of us. But, um, I got busy going to AA. This is the most important thing in my life. Without it, I wouldn't have anything. And I think as long as we, as long as I practice the, the principles and the 12 steps of the program of alcoholics and numbers, everything else is going to fall in place. I believe that. And so I've had, I've had a good life. And I want to tell you one little story about my, my granddaughter. She, she just was married. A month ago, when she was about three years old, she said, Pop, said, I want to go to one of them meetings with you. I said, come on, Rachel, we'll go tonight. So I took her over to the meeting. I got up on the front row. And I said, now, you sit up on this front row, and I don't want you looking around, doing nothing. You listen. She said, okay. And she did. And when the meeting was over, the girls all come over and got her and got her some cookies and told her how nice she was. And, 
We got ready to go, and her mama told us, said, you better not take her, you'll have trouble. I said, no, you're not trouble. And so we started home, and I said, Rachel, you've done real good. I'm proud of you. She said, well, when you get home, I want you to tell mama that. I said, okay. So she started going to Al-Anon with her grandmother, and AA meet, hope AA meets with me. And so when she's about six, I think it was, she said, one day said, uh, they come over, and her, her and her mama and grandma all going to Christmas time. I said, Rachel, why don't you stay here with me and let them go get their shopping done? She said, Pop, I'd like that. So they got gone, and she said, Pop, let's have a meeting. Now, she's been going to meet me for three years. <laughs> she said, let's have a meet. I said, what kind of meet you want to have, Rachel? She said, oh, I ain't meet. I said, okay. She said, now, we're going to pretend we're talking. And there's a big room and a lot of people back there. I said, okay. She said, now, that we're going to make out like a meeting. I said, now, you offer the chip. No, she took first of it. said, I want you to introduce yourself. I said, my name's Buck. She said, are you alcoholic? I said, yeah. She said, well, you have to tell him you're alcoholic. <laughs> And, and then she walked off the chip, and I said, the white chip, we get a, how about a red chip? She said, wait a minute, Pop. Way back in the room there, here comes a lady to get a white chip. <laughs> Greatest imagination, you, you couldn't believe it. And somebody got one, each one of the chips. And she said, now we, we close this meeting, we have to pray. And if you want refreshments after we pray, you go in the kitchen. If you don't, just go on off. I said, oh, that kid's been listening closer than I have at these AAB. But she, she had a good life, and when she got about 15 or 16, she found out about boys. And, and that she quit going to meet with me, and she told me one night, I said, Pop said, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to be going to meet with you anymore. I said, that's all right, right? So she went down to East Carolina, got a good education, and she met this guy down there, and, and they got married a month ago. Beautiful wedding, and they're doing good. And, you know, in spite of... Grandma and Grandpa and, all, and the things in her life, that it's good to see your kids do good. And I've been real proud of her. And you all, some of y'all knew Leo, this from down at Myrtle Beach. And Leo was a good man. And I met him when he first got sober. And Leo told me, he said, oh, I'll talk to you. I said, okay. <clears throat> so I come up. One day, and I had a little folder. I said, Leo, what you got? He said, I got an inventory. I said, well, it's been sober about three months. I said, you getting on with it, isn't you? He said, well, it's your inventory. That's kind of, that'll get your attention. I guarantee you. I said, you ought to be working on yours. You can tell I wasn't too happy with him working on mine. He said, but, you know, I said, I've been watching you. <clears throat> when you want somebody to help you run your life, you're going to ask them to sponsor you. You need to know something about them. And that made it all right. And for the next 21 years, we run together. And I guess <clears throat> I was as close to him as any, anybody. And when he got sick, I spent a lot of time down that week. And he said, uh, one day he said, to Dennis Virginia, said, go get out, we're going to talk. He said, what's going to happen to you, brother? I said, Leo, you got cancer, you're going to die. He said, well, I know that. But I said, I mean, where am I going? I said, man, I don't know. 
but it's got to be a good place. I said, but Leo, you've helped a lot of people. And you've done a good job in AA. And wherever you're going, it's going to be all right. He said, how you know that? I said, a lot of people, one thing, ain't nobody ever come back and complain to damn me at Leo. <laughs> I thought that boy would jump out of that bed. He laughed and just carried on. And that was on a Wednesday. I went off for the weekend, come back. Leo had died. <clears throat> and so he was, he was a good man. And he was a good prayer in South Carolina, too. He really was. And you know, we're here on the 67th anniversary of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's been a beautiful trip for me. I got to meet Bill. Bob went on before I got sober. The hell, I was just getting drinking liquor good when he died. But uh, I, I got to meet And we, we owe a, a debt to Alcoholics Anonymous. As long as we're breathing, to carry this message on to the ones who still suffer. And when I go before my maker, and I believe this is a gift that God gives us all, and he says, what did you do with that gift of sobriety I give? I hope I can say I passed it off. Thank you all. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.